This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're in chapter 18. Today's passage covers what is commonly called church discipline. I don't know why that gets people so nervous or upset, but something about discipline makes us very uncomfortable. Yet we've all been around people that lack discipline and make shipwreck of their lives. And if that person is a friend or a family member, it's hard not to wish someone had stepped in and warned them of the dangers they faced by living that way. The process of church discipline is hard, but as we'll discover, it's worth the effort to follow God's plan for His church. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. So follow along with me if you have your Bibles. We're going to be in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. And by the way, we're going to need two weeks to cover this. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. Jesus says this, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Okay? You have heard many, many Bible studies and even sermons on that very last verse where there are two or three gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. We're going to talk about that one next week. For now, let's just understand restoration according to Christ's value system. Last week, we talked about relational care, how we are to care for one another, making sure that we don't cause each other to stumble. We don't we certainly don't cause any harm to one another by our words, by our actions. And now Jesus is talking about restoration of fellowship, or the restoration of the purity of the church according to his value system. So we will cover today the rules of church discipline. Next week, we're going to talk about the rewards of church discipline. There are great rewards in honoring Christ and honoring what he says, no matter how unpopular his words are. And, and they are going to continue to become more and more unpopular by the day as our culture descends into lunacy and sin. So let's cover the rules of church discipline. Verses 15 through 17 give us the rules of church discipline. We understand that believers are to pursue, protect, and preserve one another's godliness. We, we have determined that in the last few weeks. We are to pursue, preserve, and promote and protect our own godliness by admonishing sinning Christians whenever necessary, but as brothers and sisters, not as enemies. The approach must be done in a spirit of gentleness, not vindictiveness or self-righteousness. And furthermore, believers must handle the Word of God very accurately to prevent inserting human reasoning in the process. See, we are tempted to do that. We need to be very careful so that we don't insert worldly philosophies that promote retaliation and public shame, which do not reflect the heart of Christ. 
So let's just get that out of the way. The purpose of church discipline is redemptive, not punitive. It's not retaliatory. It's not retribution or even restitution. It is reconciliation of friendships, reconciliation of fellowship to preserve one another's sanctification and to preserve the purity of the church. Now, Paul clarifies that purpose when he says in Galatians 6, verse 1, that is a key verse on the whole idea of church discipline. You should memorize that verse. It says this, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So in other words, our goal is to restore the believer who has been caught in sin. Our job is not to punish them, to straighten them out, or have a feeling of self-righteousness because I would never do that. Furthermore, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 15, do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And we're dealing with family here. So these instructions from Paul here elaborate on what Jesus has just explained in the passage we read. And we're going to see here that the people involved in church discipline or congregational cleanliness should keep the matter confidential and only involve others gradually according to Christ's instruction here if objectives are not accomplished. And we just read the objectives and we're going to go through them. So keep that in mind. It is a confidential process that should remain confidential as much as possible and only gradually move to the next level only if the objectives of the first steps are not accomplished. So let's talk about the four steps of church discipline. And these are the rules. And again, these are gradual steps. Think, think about a circle, a handful of people involved in that circle. And then gradually and very carefully and patiently widening that circle if certain ideals are not accomplished there. So the first step of church discipline is private exhortation, verse 15. Private exhortation. I cannot emphasize how important that is because we live in a culture that is completely obsessed with gossip in our social media craze, canceling obsessed culture despises this approach. But the Bible says very clearly, Jesus says, if you want to honor me, what you need to do is honor the private exhortation approach first. And again, Jesus is instructing the disciples about the confidential approach because they came to him. Remember, the context of this is that they came to him, according to verse 1 of chapter 18, to tattle on each other. But after telling them to learn childlike humility, he teaches them to steward one another's sanctification. This is how you do it, he says. And that is, again, this is a timeless principle, church, because we operate by the same truths. Just like we need to teach our children to relate properly to one another. Remember, the believer is like a child, the Bible says, not in terms of maturity, but in terms of humility. So if we are to act like children in terms of humility, we need to be taught how to relate to one another properly, just like you're teaching your children how to relate to siblings. Don't hit. Be gentle. Use your words, etc. Here's Jesus' thought process on the whole issue of the private exhortation first. The word devil, translated from the Greek diabolos, describes Satan as a slanderer. And because believers are no longer sons of disobedience, if you're a believer in Christ, you are no longer a son of disobedience, according to Ephesians 2, verse 2. And you are no longer affiliated with the father of lies, according to John 8, verse 44. So because of that reality, Christians must never spread allegations about a brother or sister in Christ, even if those allegations are substantiated. Do we understand that? We are not slanderers. That's what Satan is. So we are not supposed to spread allegations about a brother or sister in Christ because doing so will cause gossip because they do not honor the private exhortation approach. 
Elsewhere in Scripture, we are warned that the reporter of the allegation, as well as the receiver of the allegation, who assimilates the rumor without directing the concerned believer to step number one, will not be honoring the heart of Christ. Let me prove that to you. Proverbs 11, verse 13, He who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy conceals a matter. Proverbs 16, verse 2, A perverse man spreads strife, and a slanderer separates intimate friends. Listen to Proverbs 17, verse 4, An evildoer listens to wicked lips, and a liar pays attention to a destructive tongue. Proverbs 18, verse 8, This is the alternative for doing what is right. The words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels, and they go down into the innermost parts of the body. In other words, it's like eating bad sushi when you hear a gossip. Uh, You are tempted to hear it. You're tempted to be in the know, but then it goes into your innermost beings. It goes to your heart, and it causes damage. Our natural tendency, what you will be tempted to do naturally, is to not go to the person who has allegedly committed a sin or offended you, but you go talk to other people. That's the temptation. But here's the healthy alternative. Proverbs 19, verse 11 says that the glory of a man is to overlook a transgression. The glory of a man is to overlook a transgression. So you have two options. Either you simply let go. You say, Lord, I am not going to allow this to consume me in bitterness and resentment. I'm letting that go. Or you go talk to that person according to Matthew 18, verse 5. There is no third option. Here's what we do here at Grace Baptist Church. In case you're wondering, we have determined, the elders of this church have determined that we will not hear complaints about other people, other believers, until the biblical model has been honored. Now, some of us are more direct than others. We'll say, please stop. Others will just simply strategically change the subject. But that's how what we determine to do. We will not hear complaints about other believers until this particular step has been honored. Or unless the issue involves mandatory reporting, that's a different issue. In this case, we will go to the proper authorities. We will fulfill our duties as mandatory reporters. And we may even accompany the offended party for support. But look at the main verse in uh, verse 15. The main verse there is go. It's an active verb. It communicates the idea of action and purpose and intentionality. In other words, you don't, you, this is not a passive procedure or process here. God placed that term in there precisely because of our temptation to resort to passive aggression. We won't go to the person and automatically we become passive aggressive. And everything that that person says or does, we use that against them and say, see, and we build a case that has nothing to do with reality. But that's the danger of not going to the person. But here's another word of caution. Before we activate the principle of private exhortation, we must make sure that we're not confusing a sin issue with personal preference or speculation. So don't tell your brothers that, you know, you sinned against me because you wore blue on Sunday. That is ridiculous. I mean, that, that's an extreme case. But you'll be surprised when, you, when you're in ministry and do what I do. You hear all kinds of things like that. Now listen to the end of verse 15 here. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. That's the goal of church discipline. It's not winning the argument. It's winning the brother. That is the goal. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Again, you don't punish him or her. You don't embarrass him or her publicly. Your goal is not to make him a spectacle or use him or her as to make you feel better about your own supposed holiness. No, you want to win the brother. That's the goal of church discipline. 
And why do we know that? Because of a, precisely what Jesus said in verse 15. It is not the will of the Father that any of these ones perish. In other words, it's the will of the Father that we go and rescue the sheep that has wandered off from sanctification, wandered away from holiness. So we go and we win the brother. That's the goal. There is no other alternative. And when you accomplish that goal of winning the brother, you drop the matter. No one else needs to know about it. You don't talk about it. You don't brag about it. It's, it's gone unless the restored believer wants to share his testimony. And that's up to him or her. But you, as the private exhortation person, you let go. You drop the matter. There's no more. Don't bring that against him later. Married couples, we are, we are great at that. We keep a cabinet file. We forgive. But <laughs> if, you, if you walk out of the line with me, man, I'm going to use that against you. That's something that happened 10 years ago. That is not the heart of Christ. So step number two of church discipline, after private exhortation, if that does not result in full restoration, the next step is proper corroboration, verse 16. Proper corroboration. So whenever a sinning believer does not see his fault or her fault and refuses to repent, it doesn't become war. It doesn't become us against you. It never should be this way. The exhorting brother or sister must bring one or two witnesses. That's what Jesus says. Bring another witness or two not to gang up on the transgressor or to corner him or to win the argument or to put him down or to embarrass him or to shame him. That fails. But to establish the facts, that's the point. We want to establish the facts on both sides because corroboration promotes accountability for the three people involved, the three or four people involved at this stage. By the way, there should be no more than that. And again, the corroboration principle will provide accountability for the people involved to make sure that the original approach was carried out from a redemptive, not punitive, frame of mind. Jesus explains this principle by quoting from Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. When God showed the Exodus generation the divine standard for restoration. See, very similar situation here. God is detoxing that generation from worldly philosophies. In this case, Egyptian philosophy. And we need to do the same. God needs to detox us from the ways of the world and teach us. So Jesus presents then the timeless principle here by quoting from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 19 verse 15 says, A single witness shall not rise up against the men or account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. So the fact that Jesus quotes this principle makes it even more clear that this is a timeless principle that we need to observe. Now, here's another word of caution. Many people manipulate this, and I have seen it happen. People want to manipulate this process. The offended party or the believer who originally witnessed the alleged sin might be so hurt that he might be tempted to recruit witnesses strategically based on personal affinity, common bitterness against the offender, or inclination for, along with a track record of, contention and divisive behavior. For this reason, only believers who share a commitment to the biblical model of church discipline and unity and have a track record of peacemaking should be involved in the process. So if you're going to do that, if you're going to ask a witness or two to come with you to talk to a brother or sister in Christ who has been caught in sin, make sure you recruit a believer that has a track record of peacemaking, not a believer who has a track record of drama or of causing division or offering his opinions or her opinions, even if nobody's asking. You want to make sure you, you do this right. And everyone who has information on the matter, again, no more than a handful of people at this point, should suspend any conclusions. So you suspend judgment of the matter. You don't conclude anything until you have all the facts. 
You will not have the facts until you have the two or three witnesses involved in the process. And in the meantime, you must treat the sinning believer, actually always you must treat the sinning believer, with the utmost care and love. Because what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 6 through 7, is this, Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So if you really love one another like we're supposed to, we are going to endure the process. We're going to believe the best of the offender until we have all the facts, until we have approached him or her. We're going to believe good intentions. We're not going to second-guess anybody. There's nothing naive about assuming best intentions. Did you know that? It's spiritual nobility, really. To assume best intentions of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Mature believers will postpone any type of conclusions. And here's the obvious reason. Only God knows the true motivations of the heart. You cannot determine the motivation of the heart of your brother or sister in Christ. Don't assume anything. Ask questions. And we must accept the possibility that we will never have the truth. Did you know that? God may not want you to have all of the details. So fight the temptation to try to connect the dots that are not connectable. Because you will create a reality. You're going to create a theory that has nothing to do with the truth. And also, we must never get ahead of God and force an outcome. God does not need your help or mine to fix these situations. He needs us to be faithful to the process here. And let me remind you of the goal again. Anything other than the restoration of the sinning believer, the reconciliation of relationships... And full forgiveness, complete forgiveness, anything other than that, does not reflect the heart of Christ, the good shepherd of verses 12 and 13. But then if the three or four of you do not succeed at this point, then it's time to widen the circle a little more. Just just one degree more. And that's third step of church discipline, according to what we just read here. And the third step is pastoral consultation. So it's private exhortation followed by proper corroboration. If those don't accomplish the restoration of the believer, then move to pastoral consultation, the first part of verse 17. The word church, he appears for the second time in the New Testament. I mentioned this earlier. And uh, whereas in the first time when Jesus said, I will build my church in chapter 16, he's referring to the universal body of believers. Now he's talking about the local assembly. So he says, activate the church at this point. But if a pattern of simple behavior remains after the witnesses attempt the first two biblically mandated steps, then they must bring the matter to the church leadership, not to the whole church. That doesn't mean you're going to take a microphone here and announce, hey, so-and-so is living a life of sin. That is not the case. They need to go to the church leadership because the office of an elder is an, a representative office. And the elders must be informed at this point because clearly, and that's very obvious from the rest of Scripture, we need to shepherd everybody involved. The reason why we should be contacted is because we are going to join forces in calling the brother or sister to repentance. We're adding our voices to the call and say, we love you. We want you back into godliness. We want to be stewards of your sanctification. Please stop doing what you're doing. So we're not going to take over the matter. That's not what it is. I've, I've had to clarify this many times with people before. They think that they're just going to dump this thing in my lap and now, now you fix it. No, 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 no. We're going to go together. We're going we're gonna to join forces. We're going to go knock on that door together and say, we're here because we love you. We love you too much to abandon you in your sin. We're not going to walk away from you. We want you to repent. Here, let's listen to you. Tell us what's going on. Before coming to the elders of the church, however, the witnesses should patiently, repeatedly, and prayerfully encourage the sinning believer to repent. Go the extra mile. 
And in case you were wondering, here's what we do here at Grace Baptist Church. First of all, we will evaluate the matter biblically to make sure that a sin has taken place rather than we're just dealing with difference of opinions or clash of personalities or anything like that. We're going to look at the matter biblically. We're going to say, what does the Bible say about this? Not what I, what I want it to say, not what I think it says, but what does the Bible say concerning this particular matter? And once we determine that, okay, yeah, that, that is an unrepentant sin that is going on, and if the sinning believer has clearly demonstrated a pattern of ongoing unrepentant sin after many calls for him or her to repent, and we will verify that the parties involved carried the first steps properly, then we will proceed. Often people want me to intervene on their behalf. That is natural. That I understand that. It, it adds weight to their cause if the pastor is coming here. But no, it doesn't. And in many cases, I have shepherded people back to the first steps and say, I shouldn't be involved. Unless you do Matthew 18, verse 15 and 16 first, then if that doesn't work, then you come to us. Now, here at Grace Baptist Church, usually only one elder will go and intervene. And the conversation will not be an interrogation. But it will be approached with James 1.19 in mind, which says everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And the point of this meeting is to affirm the church's commitment to the sinning believer's sanctification. But tragically, unrepentant believers often ignore these attempts or they leave the church. And when that happens, they forfeit the blessing of restoration and they sabotage their own growth. More often than not, what I have observed is that God will not allow them to not deal with the matter. Years later, the same problem resurfaces, and they are forced to deal with it. Now, in such cases, if there is no repentance, if the sinning believer insists in his or her sin, then we move to the final step of church discipline here, and that's peaceful separation. Second part of verse 17. After private exhortation, followed by proper corroboration and pastoral consultation, do not promote the full restoration of that brother or sister in Christ. At this stage, the focus of the whole process now, and the elders are involved at this time, at this point, our focus will be in removing the unrepentant believer from the flock. Now, having refused to listen to the pleas of church representatives, the elders, the sinning believer then places himself as an outsider. That is why Jesus says, treat him as an unbeliever and a tax collector, meaning he's an outsider because he chose to be an outsider. He refused to listen to the entire pleas of the church to come back and live a life of godliness. But how do you treat an outsider? You treat an outsider with kindness. You treat an outsider with the desire to bring the outsider in. So we don't, there's no shunning here. Now, even after the exclusion of the word we use is excommunication, many of you may have heard the term before, after the sinning believer repents, we must embrace him immediately. Immediately. Listen to, again, another situation in the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians 2, verses 5 through 8. Apparently, the church has learned how to deal with church discipline, but there is still lacking. Paul says, if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. So apparently this man sinned publicly against Paul. That's what he said. He caused sorrow not only to me, but to all of you. He maybe undermined the authority of the apostle, wanted to embarrass him publicly, whatever. It was a public sin. The church applied the steps of discipline at this time. However, some of the believers in that church wanted to go overboard, wanted to make him pay. They were focused on retribution rather than redemption. They wanted to make a spectacle out of this man. Oh, yeah? 
you offended the apostle Paul? Here's what's coming for you. To which Paul says, no, there's no need for any more than, than the Bible says. I already forgave him. You should forgive him as well. So there's no need for a public apology. There's no need for a letter of apology. Nothing like that. Sufficient for such a one is the process of church discipline, he says. That's it. Church discipline is enough. The brother is already dealing with a guilty conscience and remorse. So what do we do? We affirm our love for him. And church, the word for us, when a brother or sister needs to be separated from the church, when we get to this point, this is painful, of course, but we do it longing for their return. We long for them to come back. Like the father of the prodigal son who daily, presumably, went outside and gazed at the horizon to see if the son was coming back. And when he saw the son, he rejoiced greatly. See, the desire of restoration was greater than the need for restitution or even retaliation. The prodigal son even thought about earning his way back to the heart of the father. You remember the story to which the father says, No, you owe me nothing. Welcome back to the VIP position in this household. You owe me nothing. I've been waiting for this time. Let's come. Let's celebrate your restoration. Church, that's the model for all of us. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people, just like you, to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast has provided you at no cost the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth with Grace.